Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. I interrupt our regular programming to bring you one of the most fascinating interviews I've conducted in 2023. It's with Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech Global, a multi-billion dollar company that many of you will know listed right here on the ASX. This is an absolutely fascinating 90 or so minute conversation with one of Australia's most impressive entrepreneurs. Not only has Richard grown this business through many market cycles, navigated through an IPO in the private markets and so on, he's also got a fantastic and fascinating backstory, how he had started previous businesses, his career before this, how he grew up and how it all comes full circle. We talk about things like Richard's ability to memorize just about anything, it seems. We talk about so many different things from culture to margins to the industry outlook to the huge opportunity in third-party logistics. For those of you that don't know, WiseTech is a software provider to the global logistics industry. It grows via acquisition and organic growth because it is able to, in effect, benefit from more logistics taking place right around the world. It's almost like a pay-per-use kind of model, but not quite. Richard will explain that and more throughout the podcast. If you like this podcast, I'd love to know what you think. You can reach out to me, Owen Rask, on Twitter. You can get in contact with us using the links available in your podcast player. And this one was also recorded. Like many of our longer form interviews, they are recorded remotely. This one um, is also featuring on the Rask YouTube channel. So if you do have some time this weekend or throughout the week, you can sit down and watch the full interview as Richard and I go through it. He's a fascinating person, a fascinating CEO, and yet another one that I'm so humbled to be able to spend some time with. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Richard White, CEO and founder of WiseTech Global. Richard, thank you for taking some time to to join me. It's a pleasure. Great to be here. Today we're going to talk about uh, we're going to talk about the business that you've built, the culture that you foster, and so many other things in between. Um, we'll spend a lot of time on wise tech, the business, and how you think about the past, present, and future. But I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago, and I think it was something to do with your home and it being automated. And I, from memory, I don't have it in front of me, 
But from memory, uh, you may have even invested in an industrial version of a Tesla battery. Uh, I'm curious, um, what was the most rewarding part of putting that all together? Well, the first thing is that um, uh, the, the, this is the home that I grew up in. It was uh, my grandfather built a function centre on the site and I lived here until 1988 and then I bought it back in 2014 and renovated it. <laughs> and as part of the renovations, I had been, I was driving a Tesla uh, Model S at the time and uh, I had a, had a friend that, uh, uh, a company called Smart Commercial Solar that's very, very good at these larger installations and, you know, very smart at how to integrate things. And I wanted three phase in the house and I wanted mm. the house to be a very automated house. So there's, there's a lot more than just the Tesla battery. <clears throat> I have about 160 kilowatts of solar on the roof. Hmm. Uh, the main battery is a 235 kilowatt hour battery. It's, it's quite large. It stands much taller than I do. Uh, and then on each individual dwelling, there's nine dwellings. <clears throat> there's a, a Tesla power wall that runs the single phase on each of the dwellings. So it's about 400 kilowatt hours of battery and about 160 kilowatt hours on the roof, or kilowatts on the roof, which gives. Yesterday created about 700 kilowatts of power and we had an output to the grid about 500 kilowatts of power, hmm. kilowatt hours of power. <clears throat> and that gets much larger in summer. So as we approach December, January, the, the power goes way up and when in winter the power goes way down. But for the whole year I'm effectively off the grid and charge the cars because the Tesla um, from, from the house so I don't use any petrol uh, hmm. uh, basically completely carbon neutral here. I also automated the whole house with a uh, with both an access control system, um, a, a digitally um, driven um, camera system and all the lighting is also, and everything's on my phone. I can open any door in the house off the phone. I can turn any light on and off off the phone and I can see the uh, the control systems on the phone. So it's, it's, it's what you'd expect out of a tech mm. guy that's interested in in, um, in understanding how things are changing for the, for the better. For sure. So, Richard, I, as a recent uh, owner of a Tesla myself, I've got to say the, the, the thought of moving almost completely off-grid if that's what you wanted to do uh, and also still be able to get from A to B is, is something that uh, really appeals to me. So maybe in time for myself. I, um, I did hear a bit of an anecdote that it may be even a way that you think about kind of carbon emissions and these types of things and sustainability as a whole for not just yourself but also for the business. But we'll, we can come to that in a minute. I'm, yeah. curious, I'm curious to go back in time a bit to a younger version of yourself and where your journey started with business. Did you have any of those entrepreneurial streaks where you're selling, you know, the cliché lemons from a lemonade stand at the front or something like this. Um, did you have any of that growing up? Uh, yeah, well, I had great uh, exemplars. Uh, my father, who was an engineer, uh, ran his own company. It was actually called John White Refrigeration. So uh, <laughs> uh, he, was a, he was a very, very smart engineer. Uh, my mother was very sales-oriented and ran a number of businesses over her life, and she's still alive. Uh, in fact, she lives here. Um, in, on the in, in the uh, in the area, and mm -hmm. uh, my grandfather uh, ran the function centre, so he was quite a, quite an entrepreneur, well known in the area. I was named after my grandfather, in fact, and uh, my grandmother mm -hmm. was a very strong operational manager and managed all the staff. You know, kept the whole place running. Uh, was extraordinarily capable of operating 
you know, what was what was quite a large business. And on, on you know any Friday or Saturday night, there would be upwards of five hundred guests at a reception or two receptions, could, which could run in parallel hmm. at the site. And um, so I had all these examples of things I could see as I was growing up. And at the age of twelve, I started working in the function center, actually washing the dishes. This huge industrial dishwasher. It was much bigger than I was, and uh, I had to sort of spin, load all the dishes up in a, in a trolley and put it inside the dishwasher and spin it around and unload the dishes. And I was working with adults, and I was feeling very, you know, in, in, engaged because this was an exciting thing. Mm. And uh, my grandparents, I think quite deliberately, uh, encouraged this of me, but they also made a ritual of, of uh, giving me my weekly pay packet, which was on a Friday afternoon, a little brown envelope with cash in it. I don't really remember how much money that was, and I don't know what I did with the money. It's a completely invisible to me. But what I do remember is the pride and the the feeling of engagement that I got from receiving a reward for the effort that I put in. And that was, you know, working with adults, feeling like I was contributing and actually being rewarded for doing that. That was a very important lesson. I grew up uh, working in the centre, working in the kitchen, then behind the bar, probably uh, well underage to work behind the bar, uh, working as a waiter and then eventually selling uh, selling functions. And uh, I also went to Bexley Primary School, which is only really three blocks from the front door of my house, and then eventually to Sydney Technical High School, which is only about six, block, six blocks. I walked in either direction uh, to the schools. And my father's factory was about 150 metres from the front door of the Sydney Technical High School and I would walk from the from the gate of the high school down to my father's factory and I would work in the afternoons in the factory uh, until he would go home for dinner and he would take me home and I would learn welding and things about electrical circuits and about, you know, compressors and about physics and about all these other things that my father knew about. And, and he also uh, had a workshop at home where he would restore classic cars and I would spend time with him Mm. pulling the cars apart and putting them back together and learning to use my hands on, you know, very sophisticated things that my father knew how to do. So it was a a great childhood and I I learned extensively through that time and I saw entrepreneurship happening. I I saw businesses, the businesses that they ran, you know, going through the successes and failures and struggles and, 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 and successions of things. So it's, it was it was very instructive, very powerful. Mm. It sounds like it, particularly that first one where everything nowadays, when it seems to teach, come to teaching young kids about money, um, or even ourselves, to be honest, adult kids, um, the ability just to tap and to you know use Apple Pay or something like this, and you don't really often see the true value of money like put in front of you. And um, at the end of the week, that brown envelope that you would get. Um, gave you that sense of pride. I just don't know how we instill those values today as much. Um, but the hard work element's still important, right? Still important. Uh, it wasn't the money, of course. It was the brown envelope. And so I don't mm. think it's the cash part of it. I think it's okay. the the concept of being rewarded for doing something and having that reward connected to, you know, effort, but also being in a learning environment. I mean, the other interesting thing about that childhood experience is but I was allowed to range quite freely. I, I could use my father's workshop. I could, I could, uh, um, you know, play in the 
in the per perimeter of the of the function center, crawl under the house and you know look at all the old um, <clears throat> structures of the building and see the work going. So see all these other very interesting things, and um, I think that allowed me to feel unconstrained by by the normal things in the world. I, I just had an ability to challenge myself and, and my brother too. And my brother and I grew up in very similar circumstances, and I think that that allowed me to, to remain very curious during my childhood and into my uh, uh, young adult life, and of course right through. Mm. It's an interesting thing. I find that um, I speak to a lot of fund managers and even CEOs on the, sh the show, and a lot of them come to some way of solving problems. And I, I think there's there's often, not always the case, but there's often uh, a kind of recurring theme throughout their childhood and adolescence where they have had problems put in front of them and they have to solve them um, with, within the you know, the, the bumper bars, so to speak, of the kind of the, the family home or on the farm or something like that. And it seems to come up again and again and again. Didn't, um, if I'm not mistaken, when I was doing some background reading, I'm pretty sure it was your father was, I could be wrong here, Richard, so please correct me. Your father who said to you, he wants you to do a trade, but you wanted to move into, I guess, the music or creative industry. Is that correct? Um, the way to, the way I would explain that, that's roughly correct, but the way I'd explain that is by year 10 in high school, I'd become a reasonably accomplished guitar player. Hmm. I moved from my mother bought me a chord organ and then I played the ukulele for a little while. This is like a four-string version of the guitar, same, same, same string tunings but different pitch, but same intervals, and same fingerings for the top four string strings of the guitar. And then I... I played the trumpet in the school band, and then I eventually picked up the guitar and I was actually good enough that I was, you know, I was this, my school friends wanted me to join their bands and have jam sessions and so forth. And I, I started thinking that I wanted to be a rock star. Uh, hmm. You know, the, in the year ahead of me um, in Sydney Tech Ohio High School, uh, Les Gock, who was the guitarist from a band called Hush, which was very famous in the 70s, uh, was there and I thought, you know, I could be like that. And my friends and I, on graduation from high school, we decided to go full tilt as a band. My father said, well, I'll, I'll allow you to do it, but you really have to do a trade as well. And so I, I would, you know, play on the weekends and at nights during the week <clears throat> at various places all over Sydney and Wollongong and Newcastle and elsewhere <laughs> whilst attending a technical college and doing refrigeration. Which I, which I did finish, and I'm, I'm, I've got a pretty decent uh, understanding of how refrigeration works, and I did, for instance, I did the designs for the cooling for the data centres, um, oh. which is a strange sort of connection because I understand, you know, that sort of stuff. Because my father didn't give me just training. He taught, he taught me really deep basic ideas, the principles rather than the practice. And so I understand how the physics of those things works and so easy to use. I did do both, but I, I didn't. I didn't continue as a refrigeration person because, you know, I, I, felt, I found the music music industry far more in, interesting. And I, did, I never really wanted to follow in my grandparents or my parents' footsteps. I wanted to learn from them. I didn't want to copy them. It was. I think it was David Kosh, Koshy of all places that I heard about this um, first. But then. Your, your your life kind of like ebbed and flowed and you ended up with um, a business that repaired guitars, is that correct? Or yeah. musical equipment? Yeah. 
some of that cost thing is actually wrong because I've heard him talking about that, but I'll, I'll correct it here. Okay. Um, so I, I I played in the band for a number of years, but I realised that it was a very, very tough industry to work in and you've got a lot of fame and attention, but you've got no money. <laughs> and uh, I, I really like the idea of being able to support myself and not being, you know, not, not being able to pay the rent and feed myself. And so um, I started, I, I did do quite a bit of work teaching guitar, but that's also not a, not a particularly, you know, a, a wealthy industry. And then and it's, it's hard to manage that on a continuous basis. So I started repairing my, my own guitars and then friends started asking me about their guitars and then suddenly when because you're gigging around, you're talking to people, you run into people like I ran into Angus and Malcolm Young at the Marana Hall in Hurstville and Angus sort of said, can you look at my guitar? And I ran into Rick Brewster and, and the Angels at uh, Coromel in uh, at near Wollongong and, uh, and we, we became friends and I started repairing his guitars and I did work for Ian Moss and I did work for Tommy and uh, Phil Emanuel and, you know, many other people. And I was just very good at it. And it was because it was a combination of the engineering skills that my father had taught me and the playing skills that I'd learned. And that was a great business. It was very profitable. It was extremely well known in the industry. It was called Rock Repairs. Um, mm. And uh, I eventually moved into town and next to a, uh, a business called Guitar City where I had a steady flow of customers. But I realised at the end that it was a service business and it couldn't scale because it was my two hands and my skill that was what was on sale. And so I eventually sold that business to uh, my co-worker, who was uh, a guitar technician as well, and started building lighting equipment, which was much more industrial. Mm. And I could I could understand it better, and I was sort of building it up on the weekends whilst working in the guitar repair business during the week. Friends would bring me <clears throat> various types of lighting and say, can you replicate this, can you improve this? And we build more of these because I had a workshop at home from my father and I had the industrial skills. I started building that. That became a very big business very quickly. How big are we talking for that business? I don't even remember. Um, it moved in four different times because the factories that I had put hmm. it in, I started building in literally, I started building in about 100 metres from where I'm sitting now in a workshop that my father had. Then I moved into a factory in Peakhurst uh, and that we ran out of space there, so I moved to a factory in Alexandria, then a factory in Five Dock, and then eventually I merged the business with Jans Electronics, which was uh, in a very big entertainment, uh, audio, lighting, and concert, concert production company in Sydney, where I became the R&D manager. But the, the, the business was turning over many millions. So I, don't, I don't recall how many. Mm. about the 80s now. It's not something I can track. Yeah. <clears throat> but it was an interesting learning experience because it's what actually got eventually got me into computer. I want to talk about that in just a moment, but... There, if I'm not mistaken, there was some article, or maybe you said it. I can't remember where I read this, but someone had brought to you a problem with a concert, and that someone had ordered all the AV equipment, and it was the wrong equipment. So you had to quickly manufacture something, and then it became the standard for the industry. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So that's a sort of a mid mid career in the lighting manufacturing. Um, Ray Hawkins who was the lighting designer for the Angels, came to me with this concept that was for the no uh, for the no exits tour of the Angels. And they had this idea of these pin spots and they were using small uh, things called PAR 36 pin spots, which are quite weak, and they were trying to create uh, prison bars on the stage. 
<laughs> so Ray wanted to do something, and I I I had been working on uh, parabolic reflectors, which is a you know it's a, a way of shaping a beam, and uh, we got the idea. We, we sort of experimented with one piece of equipment, got it working, and then I I had all the parabolic the reflectors uh, manufactured. I had the, the the metal spinning was done in my factory, and then the then the um, the plating for the reflectors was done in a, in a in a special company that does that for a plating service. Got them all back. I sent Ray Hawkins out with an order. This is getting very tight on the timelines. The, the tour is sort of happening mm. in a few days, and I sent him out, and he picked up the wrong the wrong bulbs, <laughs> the wrong lights, and so and now we had no time. And um, I looked at what we had, and I sort of built a a little standoff that uh, sat at the bottom of the light and I pushed the light forward, got it to the right focal point. These bulbs were fantastic. They were really, really bright and they were very, very small. The filament was very small and so it gave this incredibly intense light. So I named the light the ray light because it was <laughs> it was Ray's accidental but very valuable mistake that that uh, caused it. <clears throat> and it became a standard. You can you can even still state you can see them today. It's somewhat been overtaken by things like very lights and by LED lighting, uh, but the ray lights are still an unassailable icon. You can see them all over the world, many many places that <laughs> build them. Because once you create that model, everybody goes, "Well, that's a fantastic thing. I want that too." <laughs> a complete accident. <laughs> complete <laughs> accident, and you've got to basically figure out that you you you, you make it work because you have to make it work. You know this. Uh, uh, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. I guess, I guess it illustrates also your ability to creatively solve problems, having that kind of underpinning and the foundations of engineering. Um, I'd like to turn everyone's attention to uh, a speech that you did, but you also have a, uh, I guess, an abbreviated version on the WiseTech website, which was a speech you gave at UTS, which was five life lessons to challenge the status quo. One of those was follow your own path, don't be constrained by stereotypes, realize that success, talent, and passion are long-term developments. You'll work outside your comfort zones, endure hardships, and stumble at times, but be resilient, resourceful, and keep moving towards your goals. So already, Richard, we've seen you kind of move through different businesses and different ideas that seem to have been quite successful. And I, I guess a lot of people, when they think about their career or their businesses and or business, they feel like they're just surrounded by uncertainty and we go into this kind of narrow view of the world, like I'm going to be in this industry for the rest of my career, or at least in this kind of general field. Or if it's in business, as the business grows, we tend to become you know, more constrained by the fear of, of what could be outside of our core circle of competence. So I'm curious how the idea of not being constrained to stereotypes, to use your own words against you, so to speak, map to your own journey and like the founding of Wise Tech and all these types of things. I hope that's not a butchered way to ask this question, but I'm curious what gave you the courage to then go and start Wise Tech? One of the things that's uh, is perhaps a personality trait is I'm not really frightened by risk. I'm not frightened, frightened by uncertainty. I'm actually interested in those things because out of uncertainty, almost all value and opportunity comes. Risk is effectively the inversion of opportunity. If you have risk, you can turn that into something. If you remove the risk, you can make it into a successful product or a capability. I remember in the early days when I was starting you know, you know, aggressively in the computer industry, 
not knowing how to do something, being asked by somebody to do some piece of technology and I, I didn't know how, but I'd say, yeah, okay, I'll do it, and then I'd go and figure out how to do it. And <laughs> it, I, I had no idea at the beginning. I just had confidence in the fact that I could solve the problem and that I could learn and that I could ask questions, read things, you know, study something, experiment, trial and error, various other things. And you'd always come up with a, a suitable solution to that problem. And so I was in high demand because I could make things happen and I wasn't constrained by the fear that this was new and that nobody knew how to do it. It was just a question of, well, you've got to get it done. So, again, it's that same necessity thing. Mm. Do you think that um, your upbringing and the ability to just roam around, you know, the grounds where you are and to go into the um, the tool shop or the workshop, sorry, and, and go and solve problems. Do you think that was the grounding for that or do you reckon this is something innate with you? Uh, the, the, the nature versus nurture question is always really complicated to answer. I don't actually know the answer and I, I can't speak to my genetics, um, of course. No, no one really can. But I can tell you a little story from my childhood that's quite mm-hmm. material. Sure. Um, in year two in primary school, I was left-handed. Huh. And... My teacher, this is this is at a time when then you know we had much mm. sterner educational strategies, would whack me lightly, but she'd whack me on the knuckles on the left hand if I used the pen in the left hand. And so I changed over over the course of the term to my right hand. And my writing is appalling. I mean, I, I truly have the worst writing you would ever imagine still today. <laughs> and uh, how I solved the problem is I stopped writing. Right. So in classes, I would just set myself the need to remember everything. So quite early on in my learning experience, I challenged myself to remember using my memory rather than by writing. Now, later on, when computers became, you know, highly available, I just typed everything, so there was no problem with writing. Mm. But I, I actually think that that was a, it was a seminal problem that got solved by me saying, well, I... I can't even read my own writing, so I'm not going to bother. I'm just going to have to remember everything, and so I'm going to apply my my memory. Instead of giving up, I went the other way and turned it into a superpower. My memory is extremely strong, particularly for technical detail. I can remember all sorts of stuff. I can remember reading a book in 1983 called The CMOS Cookbook, another one called The TTL Cookbook. I learned electronics and taught myself. Uh, the Triple Five Cookbook and the Opap Cookbook. I read those books. Suddenly, I was an electronics engineer. Right now, it's just memory is a very, very powerful tool, and it's a predictor of intelligence as well. How did you? So, is it just through brute force? Like you just sat there and you thought, "I have to remember this." Like, were there any skills that you developed early on to commit those important things to your memory? Uh, I think it's a combination of uh, my my skill with language is obviously I'm fluent and I have a, a style of speaking and, and a way of computing with English that's very powerful. My mother developed this because I was an avid reader and she would feed science fiction books into, or she'd almost shove them in through the bedroom door and I'd <laughs> consume them and then they'd fly at the other end. I'd read you know, all of the Asimov series, um, Arthur C. Clarke, Michael Moorcock, uh, uh, Robert Heinlein, you know, hundreds of, and I even had uh, in my wardrobe, my mother put uh, a set of encyclopedias and uh, late at night when I was supposed to be asleep, I would sneak out and pull out an encyclopedia and I'd read the encyclopedia. 
I, I got about halfway through. I got to about you know, the letter M or something um, before 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 I ran out of time. But that's a that's a hell of a big job to read encyclopedias. But it was just a way of it's like a, it's like like muscle. It's like a bodybuilding. You know, you're building your mind. You're actually li- lifting in, lifting energetically with your mind. And so for me, I, I didn't have memory tricks. I just had really good memory. I th- I, anything that interests me, I'm incredibly good at remembering. If you said to me, you know, can you get some milk on the way home? I'd definitely forget that. But if you if you say, you know, here's this interesting thing about software development, here's the model and here's how you do it, I'd remember that and I'd research and I'd find all about it. It would just become stuck in my memory. So nowadays, do you use any type of note-taking, like do you have Apple Notes, like do you use any like Evernote, anything like that to support you these days or is it no, still I occasionally make notes in Word or, or Notepad or on my phone, but they're very much just a few dot points. I mean, typically I'm a dot pointer. Okay. So I, I, you, can, you know, with, with uh, ChatGPT and with other tools, you can record everything, but I don't particularly like listening to a diatribe of conversation. I, 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 I want to extract out of that the essentials and not be bothered by this uh, morass of detail. I, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's little things that make sense in there and you can I, – I still read avidly. I'm still a very strong reader. I was, I, was going, I was going to ask you there, is there like – it's your ability then, if you have this ability to retain so much, do you, do you find yourself – actively tuning out of things that you don't think are relevant to that, like you don't want to commit in there? Does that make sense? Like do you select it? Uh, I probably cut off things when there's no useful purpose in regurgitating something. Okay. I mean, if I've, if I've already heard it and I've read it, I don't need somebody to summarise it for me again because I don't need to remember it a second time. I've got it. I've got it. And so, you know, I, I do like the interchange with people when, I mean, for instance, uh, my communication staff and I often share a document and we tune it and we tweak it and we do all sorts of little, you know, sophisticated things with it because we're really quite concerned to make the text crisp and not repetitive and meaningful. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't like, I, I typically don't reread books. However, that's not true of all books. I've re- reread a couple of seminal works that I think are very important. Uh, several times because I, I think the second and third time you can extract even more value off something that's really, really meaningful. So if it's a sci-fi book, I would just read it once. I don't I don't really read any uh, <coughs> fiction anymore because I'm too busy with business, but I, I do like reading as a general. I, I find reading quite pleasurable, and I, if it's about something of interest, then I, I have a very high level of retention. So I'm going to ask you to test your memory then. Um, back in the earliest days of Wise Tech, what was it that led you to that? Like, why did you come up with the idea of, well, you know, there could be software that solves this problem or there could be technology that solves this problem? Like, what was Wise Tech in the earliest days and where did the idea come from? I'm going to do a bit of history. So it was Richard White, musician, rock repairs, guitar repair business, very mm-hmm. successful. Rock Industries, which was the lighting business. Mm-hmm. I was then the R&D manager at Jan's. And I had a lot of, uh, I learned a lot there. I, learned, I read all those books I talked about, the Samos Cookbook and so forth there. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of work very late at night, working weekends, really pushing myself to, to learn about electronics and about, and eventually about computer programming. Um, and I ended up really becoming quite strong with software development, 
that was a real uh, watershed experience. Then I, there was an opportunity to sell my shares in Jams, which I did, and I, I started up a company called Clear Technology, which became the distributor for Unisys and for Philips monitors and many other things. And I learned about wholesale and distribution. I sold that business in uh, 89. So I'm a serial entrepreneur. None of these businesses were like WiseTech, but they were all successful in some form. Mm. And then um, uh, I started a consulting business because I didn't have anything else to do called uh, Real Tech Systems Integration. I ran across two customers, uh, one called Container in General, who became very important to me because they were very helpful at teaching me about the industry, about logistics, and another one called Expeditors, which is a very big uh, global logistics company. And I noted from both of them that they had very poor software integration. They, were, they had lots of little bits of systems that were glued together, sometimes stuck together with what people call sneaking it. You know, you walk the data, you walk the pieces of paper around the office to connect things together. And uh, that was 89 now. And I, I started seeing that there was an opportunity to solve a much bigger problem. I did a, a, a quite a detailed programming job in California in Huntington Beach in 1990. And in fact, I was there when the Gulf War broke out. Hmm. And I, that was a fulfillment system I wrote from scratch. And then I came back and started working on uh, the idea of building an integrated logistics system. So I took all of those fragmented systems that I saw and put them into one piece of software that had everything in it. Now, that everything that we're talking about in 1993 now, it wasn't everything like Wisec is today, but it was a, it was better than anything else in the market and it was deeper and more capable and it covered the main accounting system, so the general ledger, accounts receivable, payable, cash book, um, the the forwarding system and the custom system, which are the, 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 the sort of key points, particularly back then, they were the things that you needed. And we, it had a little comms, a comms module that could send messages to each other. It had email built into it. Um, we had a an FTP file service, I could send the upgrades out automatically. No one had done this before. We, we had automatic upgrades, automatic database changes, hmm. automatic bug fixes. It was very, very innovative because all these ideas to me seemed very obvious. That became a very successful business. We incorporated it in 1994 to WiseTech. And uh, by 1999, we were the dominant player in Australia. We'd actually run out of market really because we'd be growing so much and the only choice then was to go overseas. The product I'd written, I had envisaged I was going to be big in Sydney. It was was quite big in Australia. We started moving into New Zealand and realised that you had to rewrite because its international capabilities weren't quite there. And so that that sort of formed the second generation of the software. Um, I, I took a bit of a, a, a detour then and did a master's degree sort of almost accidentally but I'll stop there because that we're going to get into the WiseTech story at a, at a deeper level. But I, there was one thing that I was trying to do there was to solve a problem that I saw that was ugly and poorly poorly dealt with. And I, I've had this, uh, I have this character trait that I call uh, a healthy disrespect for the status quo. I see things the way they are. People say that's the way it is, and I go, I don't like it. It needs to be better than that. That's, you shouldn't you shouldn't live with that. That's wrong. And so I have this, uh, it's, it's an uncomfortable feeling actually because you see lots of things that aren't perfect mm. and, you, and you've got to choose the ones that you're going to focus on because there's lots and lots of things in the world that you're not going to be able to change. But there's a lot of stuff that I do think I can change. 
do you, do, here's a just more of a, I guess, a team-based question, which we'll get to in a little while, but do you get frustrated when other people can't see it as well or are you okay just keeping that inside your head? Uh, I'd live a life very frustrated if I allowed that to be the, the model because it's, it's, <laughs> it is hard for, to explain to people why the thing that they're so used to mm. and so comfortable with and so uh, willing to use is is going to have to change for something which is which is delightfully better. But they don't see it that way. And the number of times that I've had people tell me that I'm completely on the wrong track and this isn't going to work, you know, we don't want that. This is, we, we just want you to have another report or another another field on the screen here. We want to do this little thing. And I'm interested in a dramatic change that actually really lifts things, you know, way, way through uh, up into the future. Mm. So how did you solve then the well, maybe, okay, yeah. How did you solve the problem of going internationally? Where did, because let's go down that path, let's continue down. It's not one thing. Uh, in 2000, having, I spent, I started working on a global plan in about 1998, but what my model, my first thing to do was to design a, a schema, a database effectively. That, that looked at the whole world differently and it brought all the pieces of data, all the model together in one place. Uh, we didn't really know what that was going to look like. I just had a, a, a view and I had a tool that we were using that I was using to design this sort of data model. Because in, in, if you're doing these big systems, you have to, it has to be data-driven at some level. <laughs> it's just a very fundamental, a very fundamental uh, requirement to get the data right first and then everything else is easy to program if you get the data right and then in about 2000 i i, I had a uh, i met a gentleman by the name of andrew caro that was doing a, a lot of work in marketing he, he'd been at the ceo and the marketing manager of records and coleman and he had a very interesting way of looking at things and so and he said that he was teaching a subject at uts in a master's degree and i said well I'd like to do that subject. And he said, well, you can just come along and sit in the class. I felt that that wasn't fair, so I, so I, so I enrolled in the degree. But <laughs> simply and only to, to teach, to, 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 to do Andrew Caro's marketing subject. However, it was deferred to the next semester because the, there was, it was full, and so I had to pretend to do something else. So I ended up doing a different subject, which I enjoyed immensely. And I realised that I could start thinking of this as a way of building business plans. And so the whole of that, I did the whole of the degree and I, 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 um, I graduated with a master's in 2002, but what I actually did was I wrote the entire business plan for the WiseTech Global Expansion as part of my studies. And I basically submitted business plans as, as assignment. <laughs> I got pretty good marks as well. And, uh, and, you know, that was an extremely helpful thing because I actually thought through in two years all the things that I had to do to build a global business. In 2002, I took uh, my marketing manager aside and we were, we were very successful in Australia, very profitable. I had a couple of million dollars in the bank. I took my marketing manager aside and I said, I'm going to start a new company inside the old company. You're not allowed to talk to them. You run the old business. I'll give you one hour a week of my time <laughs> and I'm going to hire new people and I'm going to – because the, the, the problem, you know, the problem of um, – being successful is that you, you, you think of yourself as a winner and you don't want to change. So mm. I, I built this new business, 16 people. We built the next generation product based on all that planning I did in 1998. 
the database design and all the work I did in the master's degree. And that started becoming uh, the next generation product, which was released in 2004, in April 2004. Uh, I can tell you that I showed customers from 92 to 94, and I don't think a single customer except one thought that it was a good idea. <laughs> they all thought it was crazy. But one customer, uh, Rolig, uh, which is a German company, their Australian office operations loved it and they wanted to take it on. And when they went live, it was a complete watershed. Suddenly it was obvious what was what what, what it solved and how much, how much more powerful it was. And that became effectively the, the reason why everybody else jumped on board. It became very successful in Australia. We entered New Zealand. We entered Singapore. We then bought a company in 19, in 2000, in 2006 in Chicago. We opened up organically in Europe in 2007, and the company started growing very rapidly. Can I just double click on something you said there? I just wrote it down. Um, you mentioned that one of the problems that you have, or one of the problems that businesses have, is that um, you start if you have a successful business, you think of yourself as a winner, and this idea of like you giving one hour of your time um, to the old business and developing a new business. Um, is that something that you still think about today? Yes. Um, I, 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 I approach it differently today because I think you have to create a challenger mindset in a business to be a, to be a growth business. Yeah. You, you can be a very profitable, successful business, but eventually someone will figure out how to do it better than you if you don't have a challenger mindset. Once you think of it, that you're the incumbent or the winner, uh, you're in a danger zone because you get lazy and you stop thinking about how to challenge yourself. So creating a culture of challenge and a culture of always trying to be better and, and measuring what better looks like and inspiring that sort of betterment of things, it's a quite an important thing. But back then I didn't know how to do that and just starting a new business in the old business was easy because it, it meant that I could sort of learn how to build a new business from scratch inside the shell of the old business. And I eventually, of course, moved everybody across, but it was just that it was a way of being able to move very fast and do something very different, uh, particularly one that was needed to be funded by the profitability of the existing business. Do, do you think more businesses have scope to go and just paint a blank canvas? Like, is it? Do you think it's like the the sunk cost fallacy? Like to put a label on it? Like is the sunk it, cost yeah. problem is is a, is one of those things you you think about. Sunk cost is a bit different because that's a cognitive bias, of course, but. Um, I, I think it's not, and it's not, it wasn't a completely new solution. What it was was a massive upgrade to the existing solution. So it used all of the things that we had in the existing solution, but it, it left that behind. So I, let, I left a whole legacy of code which was written purely for Australia and built a system that used all of the tools, all the capital, all the thinking, all of those things that I'd actually documented in my master's degree. So I documented a lot of the things we'd done successfully but then we built on top of it this truly international system that worked in multiple countries, multiple currencies, multiple ledgers, uh, you know, multiple trade lanes. It was a, it was a big, big change. And, and that expansion was so large that many people said, you know, this is impossible, you'll fail because it's too big. You're, you're, you're trying to do something which is so fundamentally different to anybody else ever. How can it possibly be that a little Australian company mm. can make something happen like that? But, but it worked. Hmm. I yeah. There's there's a there's a lot to go on now. I, I guess there's a there's the the patch of land between then 
and today. Yeah. And that included an IPO. So can you take us up to that point and why you decided that you wanted to share this thing that you had that was so special with public investors? Like why did you want to go to the public markets? Like how do you get reconcile that? It, it, it might be helpful if I just walk you from that initial success through to the IPO because Absolutely. there's a series of steps. Um, the company grew quite rapidly in 2006 and 2007. And in 2007, we were experiencing what I think most people would call growth pains. We were in an industry which typically sold the software on a large upfront license fee and then a smaller annual maintenance fee. We called that one-time license plus maintenance. And uh, I had uh, a head of global sales that was very inclined to try to find the biggest deals possible, get the biggest upfront payment possible, and often you're negotiating away that annual fee. And this big upfront fee usually came with a lot of commitments to build things that I don't, don't think were actually uh, really ne necessary and often were uh, redevelopments of things that we were replacing a legacy system that we were throwing out, that they were throwing out, that were actually, because the customer didn't understand the new system, they wanted to rebuild the old system inside the new system and it's wrong. Mm. And uh, I was at a, a function, I think it was an after party for an EY function, and Mike Hannah Brooks was there, uh, and Mike and I were just talking about his revenue model. You know, he talked about we charge 100% upfront and then 50% per annum for, for maintenance. I went, that's an interesting model. Hmm. But I think I can go further. I can charge zero upfront and 100% a year for maintenance, which, is, which, we, which we actually made it a monthly fee. And we called it on-demand licensing, right? on-demand period licensing. So you, basically there was no, no cost to put the software in. And you only paid when you used the software. Mm. Now that's 2007. We're now heading into 2008, which is the global financial crisis, and all capital budgets everywhere in the world were slashed, to some of them to zero. But we were not a capital budget software. Everybody else was big upfront capital fee. We were op OPEX only. Nothing to, nothing to install it, nothing to get it live. Only when you use it do you pay. And everybody was cutting costs. Everybody was trying to get efficiencies out of their business. And we had an operating model that was nothing up front and you only get paid when you get efficiencies. And so we grew between 2008 and 2012, we grew 3% a month, every single month on wow. average. Wow. Which is quite a high growth rate, higher than it is now. Um, and that led me to the second problem. We got through the GFC, 2011, that Mid-2011, I started seeing a real problem uh, developing because we now had more than 100 installations backlogged. I had 27 training staff that would fly all over the world, often in economy class, often staying in reasonably crappy hotels because the customer didn't like paying for these non-recurring costs. And... I'm thinking this is just not going to scale because it takes us six months to bring up a new trainer. And so in the, at the end of 2011, about October, I decided that the solution to how to scale the implementation team was to not have an implementation team at all. Hmm. We did two things. We built content that was so rich and complete. I took four people out of the implementation team and my training manager at the time had a 
complete meltdown because she was saying, I'm already having trouble with 27 people. You're taking four people away. And I said, I don't care. We're going to, you know, this is one of the famous, one of the famous slogans, one of the famous mantras, uh, slower today, faster forever. You pulled them out. They wrote really high quality content. The goal was make it so the customer doesn't need to hire us to train. And then my colleague, uh, Vlad Bilinovsky, he built a partner network on the, alongside the training courses and we certified the partner network with the same training materials that we trained our staff with. By the end of 2012, we had a complete platform. We didn't have any training staff, but we had a lot of content staff there because I converted them over. And we had uh, many, many, many partners who were training staff, were training customers, and that backlog shrunk to nearly zero. Hmm. I lost about $5 million a year in training in training costs, but I gained much more than that in licensing, which is much more valuable because it's got this high margin business. Training is a very low margin business. Licensing is a very high margin business. And so by the end of 2012, we were really firing in all cylinders. And 2014, we've been working since 2012 on productivity, another mantra, productivity at the centre of everything, meaning our own business and our customer business. And we've been working on the third generation of software that was more productive, more complete, more capable, more scalable. Uh, and we released that in April 2014. And by 2016, we had converted all of our customers, bar a few small ones, and the company was firing on all fours. In, uh, in 2005, uh, I had I'd given quite a lot of the staff small amounts of options across the company. And once you start giving out options and they vest, mm. staff are going to have to have some way of having evaluation and a liquidity mechanism. And you can keep it private, but it becomes increasingly difficult to do so. So you need to have a liquidity and valuation mechanism for your staff. You need to have the ability, if you're going to grow the company globally, you're going to have to have some way of raising capital if you want to do things. And in 2015, we bought a couple of companies in China and South Africa and we were looking at other companies around the world. And you also, at that scale that we were starting to become, you need to have the trust of your customers that a public market with public accounts gives you. Mm. So it was the public accounts, public trust, the ability to raise capital and the ability to give our staff a liquidity and evaluation mechanism was very important. So we listed on we listed on April the 11th, 2016. That was a Monday. I uh, I hired the Angels for the Friday night. <laughs> uh, there's a famous song that Doc Neeson wrote called "Who Rings the Bell." I got the bell from the stock exchange on the stage. I had a huge warehouse and I got invited all the staff and I got up and played, because I'm still a good player, I got up and played that song, Who Rings the Bell, with the Angels, and I played the Rang the Bell at the end on the Friday night. was was really quite a thing. <laughs> what a memory. What a great way to do it. Yeah. Sure, sure beats just standing in the room uh, with 10 people. Um, well, the Ring the Bell was good for the, for the press and so forth, but this was much more meaningful for the staff. And because I had a long-term friendship with, with, the, with the angels. It was very meaningful because they could see this connection between me repairing Rick's guitar, then building lighting for the angels, and then eventually you know, hiring them for the, for the IPA. Yeah. It was, it was quite, a, quite, a, quite a continuity when you think about it. 
How do you explain? So imagine, I don't know, you and I didn't meet and we didn't have this chance to talk and we're just in the elevator together and I introduced myself and I asked you what you do. How would you describe what WiseTech does? Uh, well, I would say uh, we provide logistics execution software on a global basis to the world's largest logistics companies. And we do that across the international supply chain and around the port communities. That's that's our core capability. But of course, we're doing much more now than we did ever before. And in particular, we've grown successively from that sort of international piece to the borders and into the port communities and into the warehousing. So you can see that we're taking these very deliberate but quite small calculated steps to increase this, this addressable market of the company. Each time we're doing that, we're doing that with software first. We're a product-led company. We do do acquisitions to make this type of growth much more effective and much safer, but it's a very stepwise process. We're doing this more globally, so we're doing it in more countries, and we're doing it by expanding uh, into adjacent marketplaces that are reachable easily from where we stand. Um, okay. This is, I've got a few questions about the acquisitions, but um, I'll just follow up again on the, the cargo-wise element because this is just to address anything that people might be unsure of. Sure. Can you t- can you tell us then who are the customers? Is it the ports themselves or the infrastructure owners? Is it the shipping companies? Who actually pays the fee, the monthly fee? So right back in the beginning, it was forwarders and customs brokers, customs agents that were okay. the customers. And in the early days, it was those in Sydney and then eventually those in Australia. And in those early days from 94 through to 99, we bought most of our competitors in Australia as well. So the product was good enough that we had a strategic competitive advantage and I was able to buy most but not all of our competitors in Australia. Um, Then, and that was helpful because it gave us scale because this is a very expensive industry. Building high-quality software requires scale, and having too many competitors, actually, particularly in software companies, can be problematic. If you have, uh, you know, one, you know, very large development and it's highly efficient, you'll get uh, you'll get a competitive scale because you always get high-quality software for the same price. Um, then um, the, the 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 company expanded when that second-generation product we suddenly started doing just sort of dabbling our toes in warehousing, in in bonded depots and in uh, trucking, very small amounts. Uh, and then the, 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 the main job we were doing from 2004 to 2014 was growing globally. So it was the same thing, but in many different countries. So it was, it was easy to replicate in the sense that there was, a, there was a substantial commonality going to the US or the UK or wherever. But there was also substantial differences because every country has its own set of customs and procedures that are different. The documents have different names. Even though it should be global and should be standardised, it never is. Even in the EU, in the 27 countries of the EU, who have standardised laws and standardised procedures, every country still implements them differently. It's a remarkable craziness that we live in. (laughs) Um, Okay. So you mentioned before that there's really no implementation team, so to speak. There's a lot of great documentation. A lot of the partners um, help facilitate. How do like how do customers present to you? Do like do, do they like is the is there a sales team that's outbound and and approaching these 
corporates, or is it do they come to you now? Um, if we have um, we have about uh, three hundred and fifty partners, and that the partners effectively implement the system, and so in order for them to continue, they they do provide professional services on an ongoing basis to customers, but that's a relatively small stream. Their main stream of business is new sites, new customers. And so you can think of it as uh, we are symbiotically connected to our partner network. We never provide that implementation. I'm very, 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 very clear to the company and to the partners that we will never compete against the partners because they should do all the work. We build the software, they implement the software. That's how it goes. And that does cause a lot of inbound lead generation. They do it themselves because they're interested in winning customers as well. So that's a, sure. a reciprocal or, or symbiotic thing. But also we have a very strong reputation. We have a, a very strong marketing message. Uh, we do a lot of work with customer stories, talk, having the customers themselves talk about their success. We do a lot of. We don't do a lot of traditional SEO or, or pay-per-click. Uh, that doesn't work for us at all, but we do have a lot of engagement. We've got probably 65-odd salespeople worldwide, and we have a very, very strong reputation for being the best in our class in this space. Hmm. Um, I realise there's one question I wanted to ask you that I haven't that I skipped over, which we might just tuck that in now if that's okay, which is at the time of the IPO, you mentioned that, um, you know, there was you're up there with your guitar playing a song, um, Monday comes, the IPO is done, gives your staff a liquidity event, right? Do you think now, like that was then, today, WiseTech is a much bigger business, financially, hugely successful for investors on the stock market, uh, for yourself, for everyone that was in the, hopefully held on to their shares. Um, do you think about that a lot? Do you think about like the value that WiseTech has created beyond just the team now and for investors at large? Um so the interesting thing is that the staff held onto their shares. I, okay. I think there was a very strong belief in the company, certainly from myself. I didn't sell shares in 2016. Mm. Um, and uh, I think everybody thought that this was the beginning of something really important and, 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 and therefore really powerful. And so, you know, whilst everybody's entitled, you're a share owner, you're entitled to sell shares, you're entitled to buy shares, you're entitled to retain your shares, uh, I, I think that the first thing was that they believed in the future of the company. Some sold, but most retained their shares. And um, I still own uh, 39.3 or something, 39.37% of the company. Hmm. I'm, I've sold a little bit over the years, but in a very slow and controlled way, and it's not something that I'm rushing to do. I just think, you know, providing a bit of extra liquidity and a bit of diversification is a good idea. But... You know, the fundamental thing here is that you I, I put myself in the frame of thinking of the shareholders and not thinking of myself. I mean, it's easy for me because I am a very large shareholder and so it's easy for me to put myself in the sure. frame of what is benefiting for the shareholders. Now, in the real world, you know, markets go up and down, uh, you know, businesses, uh, not business, but the economy is volatile and the interest rates are volatile and there's all these moving parts that you can't predict. But what you can definitely do is you can predict that you can continue to grow the company substantially by driving value through the product into markets where we can make a significant difference by improving their capabilities. You asked about who the customers were before I should have answered that question. 
Our biggest customers are freight forwarders and global global freight forwarders and global logistics companies. We have uh, 24 of the top 25 largest global freight forwarders in the world use our software somewhere in the world, and 11 of those are rolling out or rolled out globally, and we have 44 of the top 50 global third-party logistics providers using our software somewhere in the hmm. world. So it's, we're still very lightly penetrated. We've got a lot of penetration we can do and a lot of geographic, geographical expansion we can do, but there's a lot of addressable market to continue to, to grow into, and there's also the fact that we've been growing out at the peripheries. We've been growing into landside logistics and warehousing and, and so forth. Hmm. Um, Richard, you mentioned before that in certain instances making an acquisition is safer uh, for wise tech to do a lot of people, you know, indoctrinated in organic growth, uh, long-term compounding, they're not as familiar. Maybe wise tech is the exception to this in some cases and maybe constellation software overseas. Um, they're not really familiar with a lot of acquisitions going safely or going well for, for businesses as they scale. Can you, t- can you double click on that, that comment about acquisitions being safer? Like how do you, reconcile that uh, and how should everyone else be thinking about it as well? Well, well, the first thing I would say, I mean, you mentioned Constellation Software. That's a very valuable company. They've done acquisitions very well, but that's not our model. Um, And that model works. But most technology companies, if you look at them closely, you'll discover the larger ones are doing acquisitions all the time. Mm. And they are typically the acquisitions can be quite large. I mean, Microsoft just paid a huge amount of money <laughs> for um, a gaming company, but most of the time the acquisitions that they're doing are small and they relate to a specific piece of technology or a specific team or a specific thing. Now, WiseTech is growing globally, and in order to grow globally, we need to have boots on the ground in a country that speak the language, that understand the customs procedures of that country and that can actually help us with that. Now, if you're talking about English-speaking countries, there is some opportunity to do that organically. But even then, in in English-speaking countries, where we can read the documentation, we can talk to the customs officials, we can talk to the customers or potential customers, and we can do the work, it's still very, very hard to build a foothold in those countries. Mm. If buy a small company, we might only pay to to 10 or $20 million for that you know, that company. So it's not a big, it's not, it's not, we're talking, not talking about sheep stations here. We're not giving away the farm. We're talking about a tiny, tiny percentage of our, mm. of our capital. And what you get is safety because you have knowledgeable people on the ground. They understand the custom systems, they understand procedures. There's a lot of undocumented facts in those customs procedures that are not in any document anywhere. And, uh, for instance, calculations and, uh, and s- small rounding errors and other things don't exist in the documentation. And all the companies that have built this, including myself in Australia and New Zealand, have to figure out where the system doesn't work quite correctly to model that system. Mm. So very hard to do organically. You know, I would say it's possible in English-speaking countries, but very slow, painful and costly. But in non-English-speaking countries, it is virtually impossible to do that. <laughs> Without an acquisition, you need someone who speaks French or German or Spanish or Italian or, or Norwegian, whatever it is, and and in order for them to actually be able to help with that system, they simply have to understand all these complexities that are not documented and or are very subtle and hard to understand 
imagine me going into into a, a French company and saying, "We're here to build your custom system. Just trust us. We'll do it." Make it happen. Whereas if you have locals that are the shareholders in the company, because most of the acquisitions we give them shares uh, as part of the compensation or as part of the the sale. So they're very bound on this. I mean, uh, we did this in Taiwan. We've done it in China. We've done it in uh, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, uh, Sweden, Norway. Uh, we're we're going to continue to do that because it's a very successful strategy. We're not talking about large amounts of money. And we've done 46 or uh, might even be 47 acquisitions in that sort of number. And I can tell you that, you know, whilst some are better than others, there are no failures here. 46. I've just been corrected. 46 acquisitions. <laughs> um, can you maybe... It's 2017. Yeah, of course, yeah. So um, one of the things that I know is that basically you can make acquisitions for people, but you can also identify technology that is working, right? And you, correct me if I'm wrong, um, once you make an acquisition of technology, for example, you can run that parallel while you learn more about the business and about the customs or about whatever it is, and yeah. then slowly integrate that into the, the CargoWise platform. Is that the general understanding? Uh, not quite correct. Okay. So running the software in parallel is during the learning phase, but mm -hmm. during that phase we start to rewrite it on our core platform. Okay. Eventually the, the there's a few small exceptions to this when you're buying architectural things like a message uh, a messaging engine or something, but almost everything gets rewritten and replaced because you get rid of all that technical debt. I mean, yeah. 46 acquisitions, so it's 46 different technology stacks, all different. Yeah. And imagine having to maintain 46 different technology stacks. That's that's more than any brain can handle. Yeah. So getting rid of them and putting them into the core architecture is a very important, but a very, way, very, very clean way of having a fast growth company continue to be fast growth. How do you identify targets? Is it based on the need or do you have investment bankers around the world or whoever working for you out there constantly bringing you ideas? We've only used investment bankers on two deals in the 46. All, All right. of the other ones have been self-originated. Uh, most of them uh, my team or I or all of us know about because we're in an industry which is very, very clearly able to identify who the suppliers are. We simply can ask customers. We've, we've got... We, we have, you know, on a global basis, we have Nagel, DHL, uh, UPS, FedEx, Geodis, DSV, Usen, uh, and many others of these brands, CMA, CGM, one of the biggest shipping lines in the world, Maersk. They, these are companies that know who their suppliers are worldwide, and it's typically their suppliers in one country are an opportunity for us to make that as an adaption to our global system. Yeah. So we can, we can research using, you know, Google and uh, uh, other tools. We can also research using um, customs websites and we can research using our customers' information because we can ask the question of the customer. I've got so one more question. Cool. One more questions on the one more question on the acquisition front because I know how it is important it is that people understand this if they understand your business. Um, do you have like a due diligence framework? It's obviously you've done 46. Um, it's repeatable, right? Um are there any like big cogs or big items in there where you think those are the essential ingredients? Like, do you look for founder-run businesses or family-run businesses? Yeah, yeah are those are types of things. Yeah, we 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 typically are dealing with founders. Uh, yeah. The recent uh, 
acquisition of Matchbox. That was uh, we have spent a lot of time with Carl Marchese from Matchbox. It's a very important part of the thing going forward, and I have a, a very strong relationship with Carl, and that'll be a continually that'll be a valuable thing for the future. We, we also uh, are giving. There are usually an earnout in those things, and there's That's usually uh, you know a structure that allows us to feel pretty safe about the acquisition. We obviously do you know financial, tax, legal, and technical due diligence on these companies. But to be fair, um, I, I would have thought that the, the cyber cyber risk is also a big area of, of due diligence. We actually won't let somebody complete until they've closed off all of their um, penetration gaps because there's often these smaller companies often have uh, weaker frameworks than we do. But you know the the fact is that. We're very good at those things and we've built teams around that for a long time. And we can do a few acquisitions at a time in parallel or slightly in parallel. We have a, we have a dedicated acquisition integration team. So it's not just diligence and, and acquisition, it's also post-acquisition, how you integrate them into the business. There's financial integration, there's operational integration, there's technical integration and so forth. It's something we're very familiar with. And, and I'll just make the point again, I, I know that a lot of Australian companies have suffered from buying things overseas and getting themselves into trouble and then selling out and losing a lot of money. But we're talking about very small acquisitions generally. I mean, uh, I, I think if, if you look at the size of the company, we're a $20 billion company, we're buying things worth, you know, 10 mm. $30 million. It's not material to the business. And we're doing it in large numbers rather than in large amounts. So mm. small, a, large, a larger number of small companies, yes, they have some... Uh, characteristics because they're small companies, but generally there's not a lot of failure there. I think you're you're right in that if I'm not I don't want to draw this parallel too much because it's tenuous at best, but um like if if people were to study constellation, they would see uh, lots of very small deals as well. Um yeah. for the for the vertical uh software that they go for and it makes a lot of sense to me. Um so but earlier you said that when you were repairing guitars basically people were paying for your hands your time basically yeah um, now that's not the case you said companies valued in the billions and billions of dollars right and um today wise tech is split throughout the world you have certain teams that do certain functions but i'm curious because i've heard a lot about the culture that you fostered and any, I, I guess if you could just speak to what you've tried to create and what you have created over time within the team at large, that would help people, I guess, wrap their head around head around how sustainable this is going forward. So the most visible way of seeing that is to go to a website and have a look at the credo of the company and the mantras. And what, whilst these are not perfectly the culture of the company, there's a bit more in than that in it. Um, those things are very, they're striking in the fact that they are spoken about all the time. You, people quote it to each other. Um, we know, for instance, that um, anyone can talk to anyone at any time for any reason, one of the mentors. We know that slower today, faster forever is a really important thing. Another one that I can quote you, which is I often quote to people, is that and this is to do with innovation and being different. So different isn't necessarily better, but better is always different. Mm. So these are little slogans, little mantras that allow us to simplify a very complicated concept into something that people can quote and remember, and it becomes part of the culture that you're actually retaining this 
the creative influence in the business. The, the credo is, is a very powerful document. It's something that took, took me months and months and months with a lot of input from others to come up. It's very poetic. And it has a, you know, you, I, I have trouble reading without getting a bit teary. Hmm. It's that important. Yeah, well, um, yeah, I've heard, uh, I've heard a few things like uh, maybe a bit more tongue-in-cheek, beer or clock and flexible working ra- arrangements and these types of things and the, the kind of well, learning system. The celebrations. So, so beer or clock is just a, that's a very Aussie joke when you think about it. What time <laughs> yeah. is it? Oh, it must be beer or clock now. <laughs> we typically used to have beer or clock on a Friday. It's a little bit different now because of the hybrid work environment that we're in. Um, but we, we always have a cake day once a month. We had one mm. last week on Thursday. That was very exciting. We were talking about uh, a lot of things to do with the company and that this is this is broadcast globally and recorded and, and uh, shown for the staff. <laughs> These are just celebrations of, of who we are and what we're doing and where we're going. And it's, it's important because it's a binding influence on the company and the culture. Mm, it is. Um I, I I love all these ideas, but I won't get us too bogged down in these because uh, I've got one more question on this, which is um, how do you how important are you in the business now? Right, uh, it's a big company, but how important is you is, are you and the message that you bring t- to the business? Um, so the way to look at this is that there are three thousand three hundred people in the business, and I'm just one person. Um. I have uh, an outsized influence historically because of the thing that I've created. Hmm. Um, but the thing that I've created that's of most value is the knowledge about how we do it and the fact that that knowledge is shared widely with other people. Uh, I, anytime I uh, would think of that I've got something which is secret sauce or some magical <laughs> skill or, you know, whatever it is, uh, I'll try to get that into documentation, into some form of words that other people can understand. Mm. Um, my continuing skill is to see the future probably a little better than other people. But even then, I'm working with a large team of people and I'm often sharing, you know, how do you see the future? How do you actually pull the future from the present and how are you able to do that? So I, ca- I can't excuse myself from having, you know, nearly 30 years of experience. It's just the way that it happens happens to be. But on the other hand, you know, I'm still very motivated and I'm healthy and I'm very focused on how to grow WiseTech. And so mm. I'm a bit, a bit, my work in the company is all very future-facing and it's very long-term as well. It's not something that's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. It's what's happening in two to three to five years' time. And so, you know, that, that most of the company is very focused on today, next week, next quarter, next year. I know a huge proportion of the the company are in software uh, engineering or development roles and I know that that's something that you're quite vocal about is trying to get more people into the I guess the the T and the E of STEM um, trying to get uh, everyone who is interested in these types of technical sciences and technology to take that leap and to do it and um I was chatting to Claire, uh, one of your team members, uh, in the lead-up to this, and she gave me some fantastic stats. But there was one thing that clearly jumped out to me, which was the idea of earn and learn, Um, how you can try to support people to study these things and support them financially through that process and at the other end have a job at WiseTech. Can you talk to me about how important it is to you to look downstream for talent and like why that is so important to you? 
Well, first of all, I've been, we've been supporting people uh, giving uh, scholarships and sponsorships since 2000. Since I did my master's degree, the faculty hit me up pretty quickly because they knew that I was I ran a company and that I was a CEO. So I didn't I wasn't on the university campus for more than about a day before people were talking <laughs> about sponsorships and scholarships. And I've sponsored you know various uh, degrees and uh, ex exceptional students in degrees for more than twenty three years. Um, what I've realised is that that's not enough. Uh, you need to start very early on in primary school. And you need to also talk through society, through parents, through other folk like this, to people about the value of STEM. And I don't actually like the word STEM. I think it's a misleading term, but let's use it for the <laughs> term to use now. Um, we have to convince people that future high-value employment isn't you know, digging holes in mountains and exporting iron ore or, or living off the sheep's back or... You know, and, and that we, you know, the people in the businesses like WiseTech are actually competing for talented people with accounting, law, medicine, banking. And we need to be very strong at why a career in technology is a very high-value career. Now, WiseTech doesn't just have Earn and Learn. You've got to see Earn and Learn as the bridge between high school and university and the bridge between education and employment. But we go right back to early high school and, and uh, late primary school with uh, our partnership with Grok Academy, which teaches technology subjects on a digital platform. And that is a very important piece of that. Hmm. Earn and Learn takes, we, we would like to be able to engage with high school students from probably year nine or 10 through to year 12. And we're doing more and more in that sort of program area. Uh, part of it through Grok Academy and part of it with direct engagement with high schools. In fact, I've got a meeting uh, with the the uh, the head of school uh, at Sydney Technical High School tomorrow uh, uh, because I've you know I'm an alumni of that of that school and I'm talking about these programs now. Earn and Learn, we would make offers about halfway through Year Twelve, so we're making offers now, hmm. and those people join the company full as a full time employee. Once they finish their school year, they might take a holiday, but they'll join, uh, you know, pretty much straight after that. And they'll then go to university part-time for maybe four years, maybe five years, depending on the extent of the degree. And they'll work at WiseTech full-time. They will have a full-time wage. That's a lot better than flipping burgers when you're in high school, when you're, when you're trying mm. to support yourself at university. Uh, you work with professionals, so your, your learning is amplified many times that which you'll get at university. I'm pretty confident when I say that the students that are doing Learn and Learn now are generally at the top of their classes in terms of marks and in terms of their actual abilities. Mm. Um, if they are high achievers, though, if they get a distinction or a high distinction, we pay their hex. <laughs> so they don't have a hex debt at the end of their degree and they get, a, a, they get a, a, as long as they're working full time, uh, they get a, a share grant, uh, which at the end of four years would probably be enough to buy a house, to put a deposit on a house. Wow. So full-time wage, no hex debt, deposit on a house, a fantastically trained career that comes out the end as a probably the, one of the most valuable software engineers you could get. That's a great outcome for them and it's a great outcome for us because they're also very connected to us and very uh, willing to be a part of the team.
It's an incredible thing. When I read about this, I just thought that was unbelievable. How many, do you have any rough idea, even just how many people at the very highest level might have gone through this? We're talking hundreds. We're well, it's, talking- only, it's only run this year. Um, the, the, the plan for 2023-24 is to bring on 50 people and the plan for the year after that is 100. Wow. I that's think that's uh, it's quite an important understanding that we've got um, we've got really big plans to be uh, a very substantial uh, employer of uh, youthful but very talented uh, software engineering people, and you can see that in the in the in the people who we've already got on. We've, I think we've, I think it was twenty seven that we've hired last year. Uh, that is for the twenty twenty three year, and I think. We'll, we'll um, 28 was just corrected again. <laughs> so I think uh, we'll, we're trying for 50 this year and we're trying for 100 the year after. And I think that's got to build a program up. You've got to get the university familiar with what we're doing because the university finds this a little bit challenging. This is a bit different to their normal things. So. Sure. Well, but, it's uh, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity, isn't it? For anyone that's – if anyone is watching or listening to this that may be in the later stages of high school, go to the Wise Tech website. It could be worth it many, many, many times over. Well, you should look at Grok Academy if your if your children are in high school or primary school because it's got great training for both mm-hmm. primary and high school. It's really important to get your kids into that because it's a it's a life skill for the future. The Earn and Learn is a very powerful way of having your child come through that. Uh, the Earn and Learn open uh, openings are still open until the twentieth of November, so we're uh, and it's on the website. Mm-hmm. Um, but we even go further than that because there is the thing called the Wise Tech Academy. Which, which provides internal training for our own staff. It provides a number of other training opportunities for industry, including certifications and other things for industry. But it also provides a very powerful course called a black belt in thinking, which is one of the core things we do at WiseTech. This, um, this is based on a book called It's Not Luck by Ellie Goldratt, but it's a powerful way of systems thinking. And that's a really, really important reason why WiseTech has become as successful as it is. Without that, it wouldn't be what we are today. So we teach that. It's a very low-cost course. You can read the book, It's Not Luck, and you can do the course called Black Belt in Thinking, and it really does change your life and gives you a meta skill for the rest of your life. Right. I think everyone's so That's the whole of the learning so from very early childhood right through to adult learning and, and reskilling. I think everyone's going to, after they've done watching or listening to this, they're going to go and Google many different things, but... Black belt in thinking and the Wise Tech uh, website is yeah, it's going to be it's going to be at the top of the list. I've got it. Okay, so I've got a couple more questions, um, and then I'm sure you've got many other things you want to be doing today. But I've got a couple more questions, if I may. One is technical degrees, technology as an industry, software. All of a sudden, we've got the uh, the quote unquote AI tools, ChatGPT, GPT four, Google Bard, a lot of these things that. Um, People are using to help them write code, to help them learn a new language, whatever the case may be. How does that impact not just, or how does that impact wise tech? I guess is the most important question. So I think we're in the, in the beginning stages of a, a new technology. I'll say, I'll say evolution because I think a revolution is a bit too strong. Okay. Um, we've had numerous technical evolutions from the beginning of computing. Uh, we've had, you know, the the invention of the microcomputer was a breakthrough. The, the IBM PC was a huge breakthrough. 
the ability to have a graphical operating system like Mac or Windows was a huge breakthrough. Um, the amount of computer power that you can put into a computer, into a graphics adapter, is a huge breakthrough. Uh, the uh, smartphones, iPhones and Android phones are a huge breakthrough. Um, I, I think this is just another uh, evolutionary step that has enormous benefits for business as long as you understand it. You know, the first thing is when we talk about artificial intelligence, we're not talking about intelligence. What I say is it's big A artificial hmm. and a tiny little I intelligence. Okay, you know, ChatGPT appears to be intelligent and we, you know, this is this is the problem with humans that they ascribe a human-like quality. We anthropomorphise something if it appears to be human. But ChatGPT can also have massive hallucinations and get things completely wrong. And you can also do sorts of weird things with it if you know how it works. Mm. It's also an incredibly useful tool and it does things much faster than a human could do before. So just like many other aspects of computing, it's more powerful and can do things better, provided the thing that you're talking about is well-formed. Uh, I use it for research. Um, we use Copilot in the development area. This helps developers. We're using Copilot across Office 365, Microsoft 365 now. Um, we're an early adopter of that. Um, I've used Bard. I've used a number of other um, AI tools. But when we say AI, we're talking about uh, what is actually called narrow AI, where it does one thing really well, but nothing else. And uh, uh, if you drive a Tesla, and have you got full self-drive on your Tesla? No, I've got auto steer, but not full self-drive. Well, I have full self-drive, and it's it works, sort of, but <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah, that's what I've noticed. <laughs> uh, so, look, I'm happy that it's developing and it's getting better all the time, but we're a long way away from autonomous vehicles despite, you know, many people saying that we're going to have autonomous vehicles mm. in 2019, we're not even close, not even close. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, we tend to ascribe, you know, these, we anthropomorphize, we put human qualities to machines. Machines don't have a survival instinct. They don't, they're not, they've never gone through evolution. They've never had, you know, this billions of years of evolving and surviving. It's not like they're going to take over the world. It's, they're not intelligent in the way that you understand and I understand intelligence. And we're, we're a long, long way away from uh, uh, AGI, you know, uh, which is general intelligence, right? The yeah. Artificial general intelligence. I think if you look at these things, they are powerful tools, but they are just like many other powerful tools in the past. It's very important for CEOs and for technologists to, to extract every last skerrick of value out of those tools but they're not about to take over the world and not mm. even close. Mm. Well, like, that's reassuring to a lot of folks that maybe yeah, are a bit worried about it. So um, one more question on the company. As far as I could tell, um, like you said, market capitalization, the entire worth of the company is about $20 billion at the time of recording, um, about $820 million of revenue. Um, how big is the opportunity that you're chasing? WiseTech's known for its growth, its global business, like how, what do you say to investors when they ask you that question? So the best way I can do this is instead of referring to addressable markets, which anybody that analyzes addressable markets, is a, it's a rear windows look at legacy software and what it generates. Hmm. So it's not very helpful if you're, a, if you're a, a, an innovator and you're creating new things. I'll give you a good example. Here's the thought experiment. What was the addressable market for the iPhone on the day it was released? 
probably whatever Nokia was making at the time. It's like 1% of what it is yeah. today. Yeah. Right? And that's the point. You can't tell an addressable market. It's a rear, win- rear window-looking thing. So a better way of looking at this is to look at a global, a global product, a gross global product, which is mm-hmm. about $105 trillion. And then logistics, the supply chain, part, the logistics part of the supply chain that drives that, is a, between 12 and 14% of that number. That is what the cost of logistics is. So let's call that let's call that $15 trillion. Now, our contribution to that might be to take 1% of that. That's a very top-down way of looking at it, but that's that's what I think the addressable market might be in the long term. That's a that's still a very, very, very big number. That's huge. It's enormous. Yeah. I don't know many uh, Aussie businesses that could uh, say something like that and have and, and for it to be reasonable, right? Like, um, well, it's, it's, look, What I just said is a very rational perspective. It's just not the way that anybody else looks at it. And I don't necessarily want to copy other people because they've got their way of looking at these things. But if you think about it in the very long term, I, I don't think it, there wouldn't have been a single person on the IPO that said will be $20 billion in seven years. That that would not have been a single piece of rhetoric that anybody would dare to say. That's what I thought, but I didn't I didn't say it out loud because it would look like I was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I've got two final questions for you, but before I get to those, I just want everyone, if you if you do have really anyone in your life that wants to learn about um, business, about uh, engineering and technology, head to the WiseTech website. If you're a shareholder, you can find that information and the investor relations uh, part of the website. There'll be a link in the show notes for all of that and more. Um, you you mentioned that one of the mantras is um, slower today, faster forever. And one of the questions that I had for you was around like rituals that you might practice either daily, weekly, yearly, whatever the case may be. But I wonder if that applies to you too in the way you grow as an individual what are the, maybe some of the things that you do to slow yourself down to go faster in the long term? Because anyone listening to the first half of the conversation would think, wow, Richard, you know, he's got fantastic memory, seems to read a lot, he crams a lot of stuff in there. Um, what do you do as part of that to make it sustainable, I guess? Well, it's different for different people, but in referring to myself particularly, I mean, slower the day, faster forever came from behaviours that people saw of me. They were frustrated that I wasn't immediately jumping on things and going really quickly and I'm going, now let me just think about that a bit. I don't think that maybe there's something more to that. Let's just not rush. In fact, another way of saying this, and I've said this to many people, calm is a superpower. Hmm. You know, if people get very excited and want to react instantaneously to something that's just happened without the analysis to actually understand what it is. Now, if the, if the building's on fire... That's a different thing. You've got to react very quickly. You know, if there's some imminent danger that is ever present and going to happen without you intervening, you have to move very quickly. But where you have time and you can make an informed decision and you can think about what the best possible outcome would look like and how to build that best possible outcome, you should spend the time. A lot of people want to react very quickly when thoughtfulness is a very important feature of successful outcomes. That You don't build a business the size of WiseTech by making snap decisions the whole way along. Sometimes you have to, but most rarely 
almost all the time you have the opportunity to think about things. I mean, he bought um, uh, Bloom and Envasse in uh, February this year, uh, about 900 million Australian dollars total cost. Um, we were probably working on that strategy for more than a year. And we were working on the acquisitions themselves for more than six months. Mm. That's not rushing. Yeah. Uh, Matchbox, I was talking to Carl in 2018 and didn't manage to get it across the line until you know, just a couple of weeks ago. Mm. I think there's, it, it, there's, you know, calm is a superpower and taking your time to make the right decisions and understand the, the import of those decisions and how to best maximise them is a very important thing. The other thing is not making decisions is also very bad as well. So if you're just a... <laughs> uh, 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 you know, uh, someone who doesn't like to make decisions, that's not the idea. You've got to make a decision. You've just got to make sure it's the best possible decision given the time and the pressures that you're under. And so that is a characteristic that people often think that I'm vacillating because I'm not deciding on something because I want to make sure that I've got the decision right. Now, if it's, if it's urgent, I'll go very quickly. But most of the time you've got the opportunity to think for a day or a week or a month and it's okay because you get better outcomes if you if you and sometimes here's a really interesting thing a lot of decisions disappear because they weren't important in the first place and when you don't decide they just don't become important anymore they mm. go away mm. so this is one of those things is that people confuse important with urgent they think that urgent means important urgent means urgent important means urgent important and often urgent things disappear of their own accord. I um I have a bit of a triage system that I run in my own life, Richard. I if people if people send me an email, and people will know who send me an email, uh, that if it's urgent, they'll text me, um, or they'll try to call me. And if they don't get through to me the first time, if they call back again, then I know it's really important. So now <laughs> I, I better get to it. It uh, otherwise it could be in the artificial urgent bucket or the high priority bucket for them, but. For me, it might not be. So um, I've got... Sorry, there's one more thing to, to add to that. I think, and this is a really important thing, it is also very important to decide what not to do. Hmm. Uh, when you buy businesses, there's, there's the businesses that we've acquired, there are a lot of things that businesses do that have not generated anything of value for them or their customers and not doing them. Whilst it feels bad because, you know, there's inertia behind these things, sort of an inversion, inversion of that sunk cost effect, mm. stopping it doesn't actually cause any problems. And if you say that if I stop doing this tomorrow, what bad would happen? And the, the most bad thing that happens is people go, oh, I don't like it. My customers may not like it. Well, so, well why won't they like it? I mean, if this is not an important thing, why are we doing it? Mm. And it's really, and, and you think about not doing things, it's really important to know what not to do in the future, to, to stop doing things that don't produce much value. Mm, I love that. I'm just thinking about all the the things that I could probably just take this new owner lens to the blank canvas, if you will, from earlier on, and just think about that. One final thing is this: a lot of people that listen to this probably I did. I'm not making their mind up for them, Richard, and they should speak to a financial advisor and all that. They'll probably, at the very least, be putting what Wise Tech on their watch list if it's not already in their portfolio. If someone out there is looking at the Wise Tech business and what you've created along with the team. I'd love to know just maybe a couple of things that they could keep in their mind after this conversation to make them think, well, I can keep tabs on how Richard and the team are going. Like what metrics or what what yardstick are you moving towards um, so that they know that you're doing, frankly, a good job? 
Wow, that's a really complicated question, isn't it? That is. I'm going to do two things. I'm going to say that I'm going to I'm going to refer you to uh, my auntie asking to invest by asking me to put her on the chair, on the chairman's list in 2016 when the IPO. I'll tell you that story, mm. and I'll I'll start with this. Um, this is a technology company. It's global in scale and reach. It is critically important to the world of logistics. And the world of logistics is in a little bit of a downturn at the moment, even though WiseTech is doing quite well relatively to that. It's still not, uh, it has it has a little bit of softness in that market. But logistics has always been and will always be a critically important part of the world's mm. uh, processes. The, the, to live, you have to have logistics. And so because it's a tech company and tech companies are highly valued and high growth by nature, because we're in a critical industry that is itself high growth and critical by nature, I think it's, you know, it's one of the safer investments. And by the way, uh, with this exception of my auntie, and I'll tell you that story, I have never told anybody to buy WiseTech shares. <laughs> I've said, make your own mind up, form your own opinion, all the information is there. Please make your decision the best you want. If you want to buy, buy. If you don't want to buy, don't buy. I'm going to do the best job I can running the company. Your job is to decide whether you want to be an investor. I'm, ne I'm not a promoter of WiseTech. I'm a promoter of WiseTech shares. I'm a promoter of WiseTech's abilities and capabilities and its its journey to the future, which is very powerful. Sure. Now, my auntie, uh, I'm quite close to, called me a few weeks before uh, the IPO and she said, I want to invest. I want to put money in because I want to – uh, I want to make sure that I give my grandchildren a good education and I want to have some money to do that. I said, well, Andy, you know, um, I want you to read the entire prospectus from end to end <laughs> and if you can answer questions from it, I will let you invest and I'll put you on the chairman's list. But other than that, I'm not going to do it. And she put an amount of money, and it wasn't a huge amount of money, but let's call it tens of thousands. And to make her safe, I granted, I gave her I doubled it by putting my own money in against hers and said, that's a, that's a gift. So she had double what her investment was. But, of course, since that time, it's gone up 20 times. And so <laughs> she's extremely happy. And I think her and her husband look at the share market every day and look at WiseTech and they often call me and text me and tell me how happy they are and so forth. But I, I truly, truly want people to want to be a WiseTech shareholder without having to um, me to tell them that they have to be a wise shareholder. They should make their mind up. And if there are plenty of investors in the world, wise tech is one of them, but everybody's got to make their mind up themselves. I like that. Um, and I think it's I think it's wonderful. And there's more and more uh, analysts and investors that now cover the company. And um, I would say if anyone does read those reports, just remember to keep in mind all of what we've talked about today, about everything that has transpired to get wise tech to where it is now not just from Richard, but from thousands of people. Well, uh, Richard, this has been a fantastic conversation and very wide ranging, uh, quite personal at times, but I think it speaks to the legacy of the business um, you've built and how it's most likely going to keep growing for many, many years to come. So I really appreciate you being so generous with your time um, and behalf of the Australian Shareholders Association and the RAS community. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, Alan.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.